Dharma Bites is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Yesterday, I was talking about, um, you know, this double Vajra and the theme of integration. And uh, I just wanted to uh, say something, recap on something I was saying yesterday. Um, you know, we were talking about unification of um, apparent opposites or contradictions or paradoxes. And um, there's a lovely quote from our teacher, Bhante Sangharachita, that says that all of those things are apparent contradictions and that they actually unify, that there's a higher synthesis, that's what it says, they kind of unify at a higher level, which is a very interesting way of putting it. But I wanted to just mention something that I was thinking about, uh, you know, an event like this, a retreat, that where you, we have a number of different activities, you know, we meditate together, we do rituals, we do puja, we have sauna, we eat meals together, uh, you know, we just be in here together, we talk together. Um, that um, there's something about they're not. It's not like you have to be into every activity. I think there's. I know that sounds like a really simple point, but there's a really important point in there, which is to do with. I think it's something about how the human psyche can work, and that is um, if we're not careful, we we, um, we can. Uh, I'll talk about it in terms of the individual first, actually, because I, I, I come across this quite a lot living at a retreat centre. That I hear many different versions of a story, which is people say, I'm a bad person. They won't, they won't necessarily use those words, but they'll describe something that they're really deeply unhappy about in themselves. But I don't have the same impression of them, especially when I've got to know them a bit. And you have a kind of wider view of you someone and you think they're fantastic. You know, they've just maybe got some rough edges like we all have. But if you're not careful, it's a sort of thing that we can do is that you focus on the, um, the thing that you're most dissatisfied with and you enlarge it and you think that that's your identity. And so I wanted to mention that because I was thinking, um, you know, don't, you can, it's easy to do that on a, on, a, on, a, on a retreat as well. Don't worry if there's something that you don't particularly engage with on, on this retreat, if there's a particular aspect of it, you know, don't worry about that. You know, actually, what we do is we come together and hopefully, generally, you'll get something out of it, even if it's just an experience of being together. So don't worry if there's something like puja, for example. That's quite a common one. It took me years to before I fully engaged with uh, puja, doing ritual in the evening. It might be meditation, you know, it could be anything. It might even be you don't really like having saunas. <laughs> I mean, you know, but, uh, you know, the, the, there's just this kind of uh, tendency that... Um, you think that you have to enjoy all elements of something to get, you know, for it to be all right. Actually, it's not like that at all. It's not like that as an individual. It's not like that uh, as a sort of, uh, you know, as a collective. What I find that's also really interesting, though, is that that kind of dissatisfaction that we can feel with either with some parts of ourselves or some parts of a, a retreat like this, it's also a kind of like a golden key to our uh, liberation. Because in a sense, we need to have a sense of dissatisfaction in order to change. You need to have it. So don't, don't dismiss that part of you as well. 
in a way. You know, it's a very important part. It's just like a, what I see, and I see it myself, and I see it living at a retreat centre. The danger is that you, you need a bit more perspective and that you tend to just look at the focus on the things that you don't like about yourself or you don't like about somewhere where you are. So uh, anyway, that was just a reflection. Uh, 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 something that was just sort of, you know, rumbling away in my mind uh, uh, since yesterday. So today I wanted to talk about something else. As I mentioned yesterday, I wanted to talk about fear and fearlessness. And uh, I feel that this particular subject is so important. I'm almost like I'm worried that I can, uh, you know, I want to do it justice. I think it's so important. It's been so important in my own life. And I think that um, there is something that uh, the Dharma says about fearlessness. It's quite a, there's quite a kind of rigorous analysis, if you like. And I think that um, it's something we can all relate to. I think sometimes when you think of uh, Buddhism and you think, oh, you know, wisdom and compassion, they're kind of, it's a bit difficult sometimes to get hold of them. But I think fear, I think we can all have a sense of what fear is. I think uh, there's no human being that does not experience fear at some point, uh, and some of us quite often. And uh, so that's what I wanted to talk about. And I thought I would just begin... Um, because it was my own way into meditation and Buddhism, I thought I would just begin and tell you what that was for me. And, th and uh, I didn't think of doing this until last night when uh, Pippa and Jason were asking me, how did I get into Buddhism? Or, or, uh, I think that was the question. I said, oh, through meditation. And I said it was because I was suffering from a lot of anxiety. And uh, I mean, I realized, though, that now because I'm a long way from that experience, I can almost feel a bit glib in myself, I can just write, just roll out that answer, yeah, yeah, I'm suffering from anxiety, you know, now I'm a Buddhist, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, this dinner's nice, isn't it, you know, just sort of move on. But actually, it, you know, I was thinking afterwards, well, hold on a moment, I remember, I remember, if I go back 15 years, when I was having intense fear, I remember thinking to myself, don't forget this experience. I, even at that time, I had a sense that I probably would overcome it and that I would probably forget the intensity of the fear. And I was like, don't forget this. This is so strong. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Because, you know, it was, it's, it's what uh, motivated me to change, make significant change in my life. So I, I just wanted to, I'll say very briefly what it is. Um, Pavadaka and Ari Pala, maybe some one or two others know, know about it because I've lived and worked with them and we talk about that kind of thing uh, from time to time. But what it was, I started having, uh, it was fear of death. And I, and I thought that actually I wanted to mention that because I think that's the primary fear. I mean, often our fears take different manifestations, but the, uh, certainly through Amoga City, I mean, the, you know, the Buddhist analysis is that most, if not all of our fear, goes back to the fear of dying in one form or another. But with me, it was a direct fear of dying, and it came from uh, my father's death some years beforehand. It suddenly became alive and present in me, my own mortality. I was going to die just as he died. And how it manifested was um, extreme anxiety on a daily basis. And what it meant was it was a fear of anything connected with health and well-being. And it took such an extreme form that uh, I was living in Switzerland in, at the time, in Geneva, that um, I couldn't actually... Like, if I heard an ambulance siren, I thought, that's for me. 
if I, I couldn't even walk past a pharmacy in, in Geneva, they have these, like, it's a green cross. Yeah? Even a pharmacy, just where you go and buy pills and stuff, I, I would literally cross the road uh, not to walk past it. And, uh, and it would kind of go on. These cycles would just go on uh, day after day. And, uh, and that was what led me to meditation. I couldn't really do much about it. Like, my, I couldn't turn off my mind, in other words. And it was only through, uh, I mean, uh, when I came back to uh, England and I started, it was literally the mindfulness of breathing, actually. That was the first thing that really helped. And what that enabled me to do was to sit and let the kind of anxiety uh, work its way down rather than kind of always feeding it up and up and up. And, uh, you know, over a few months and then some other just general Buddhist practices of just like, talking to other people. <laughs> I mean, I know that's not a uniquely Buddhist practice. <laughs> you know, things like that kind of helped. So, um, you know, that was my route. That was my route into, first of all, into meditation. But also, I mean, it wasn't the only thing for me. I mean, I had other things about what's the purpose of life and that kind of thing, and Buddhism helped out with those. But, you know, it was this direct... That was the thing that actually got me to kind of make some kind of significant change in my life. And uh, uh, it didn't just take six months. I mean, anyone who suffered from anxiety can probably relate to that. You know, that it took, it probably took uh, three, four, five years before I felt a kind of confidence. And even longer than that before I was prepared to really test myself in really stressful situations. Maybe six, seven years. Yeah. So, I, I... I mean, I wanted to mention that because although that's a kind of personal story, I do feel like fear is a universal uh, emotion, if you like to use that word. And, um, you know, it's debilitating. You know, that's what it is. And, uh, you know, it often takes other, other forms. I mean, that's my, uh, my view of it or, or my experience and, and um, you, know, my, um, you know, just in talking to other people. So it's not often as kind of... Um, you know, primal, if you like, or fear of actual death, but it often it could be fear of loss of security, loss of reputation, fear of embarrassment. Um, I mean, public venues are often a place for fear, aren't they? Having to talk in public, that kind of thing. And they're all like mini deaths in a way, I think. Something like that, anyway. So what I wanted, what I wanted to do, I've got two things, I've got two practices, if you like, that um, I think are really good for tackling any kind of fear. Uh, one of them's an inner practice and one of them's an outer practice. And I thought that's what I'd like to say um, something about um, this morning. So the, the inner one, well, it's just based on a very classic Buddhist analysis, which I think probably influenced... Um, you might have heard of a book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffers and a whole load of other books. In a way, the first line says it all. The whole rest of the book just kind of explains that a bit. I mean, not to say it isn't a good book. And, uh, you know, and I think it's probably helped an awful lot of people. But um, the, the Buddhist teaching, there's a, there's a few places in the early Buddhist scriptures where the Buddha describes uh, what he did uh, when he felt afraid. And this was a time before his enlightenment when he actually just like went to seek out a frightening place, the jungle. And uh, he said fear could arise. Not this is very interesting. Not necessarily for any reason. You know, it could just arise as he was in the jungle or whatever. 
And uh, I mean, it was an incredibly kind of simple thing that he did. He said whatever he was doing, he would carry on doing that thing. So, you know, there's a classic Buddhist description of whether he's walking, sitting, lying down, or one other, what's the other one? Standing still, I can't remember now. So, uh, you know, whichever one of those, whichever one of those bodily postures he was in, he would just carry on doing that until the fear passed. And so, of course, somehow you need to have a trust that the fear will pass. Uh, you know, that's quite a big thing in itself. But that was the practice, if you like. So whenever fear arises... I mean, what I found in myself, uh, taking that taking that on, there's a couple of other things that I do if I start to, if I do feel uh, this kind of fear, especially if it's quite intense. One of them, and I started doing this very early, not necessarily for fear, but I started doing this very early on when I learned to meditate, is taking your breathing lower down in your body. So I noticed, you know, uh, again, with the anxiety, my, breath, my breathing was very high up. And there's something, there's something incredibly grounding and satisfying about uh, learning to breathe, you know, in the belly. And that when you feel fear, actually consciously having your attention in this area uh, helps, or it helps me. And uh, another thing that I would do would be um, actually notice, um, the, 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 you know, my connection to the ground as a kind of earthing fear. So, you know, especially when I was standing up, especially if I was standing in front of people, you kind of feel this sort of like feel the, uh, through the soles of your feet, you know, feel the kind of uh, the connection with the earth as a kind of grounding. And it's got an obvious point in a way, but, you know, doing that as a kind of conscious, deliberate act. And it does pass. I mean, that is the thing. I mean, I know this from my own experience. It does pass. But, it, you know, it can be so kind of debilitating. And I think there's also something about being in environments where, uh, I mean, one thing that I've liked living and working in kind of Buddhist environments, that you get actually, you know, you get a lot of support. It's not like people just want to soothe you and say, there, there, it's all right. But they actually recognize what you're going through. And there's something about that recognition that can really help. Uh, you know, that you are, you know, you've got places and people that you can talk to, and I think that's really important. In a way, that sort of just like leads on to what are the, the second area, if you like, which I'm going to maybe unpack a little bit more than the first area, the outer practice, if you like. And it's, it's quite a surprising one, I think. Anyway, it might be quite surprising for some of you. Um, as, a, as a way of overcoming fear, what the Buddhist tradition says is accomplish others' good. You come across this in a number of places. It sometimes takes a different form. But what that, I mean, it literally means you can overcome, I wrote it down here, but let me just read it word for word. Um, you overcome fear by putting yourself at the service of others. Really interesting idea. And so let, let me just try to unpack it a little bit. Um, You know, I talk about this, the, you know, the primary fear being the fear of, of death and so on. And what Buddhism says is that, um, you know, fear comes about because we have an ego consciousness. You know, that's how it arises and we fear losing it. So whether that is literally dying or just like feeling embarrassed by doing a stupid thing, it's all kind of goes back to the same root, as it were. And um, 
but there's a very important thing to say about ego consciousness because some of what I've read about it, you would think like it's a terrible thing to have and you've got to get rid of it. Actually, actually the Dharma is very clear that it is not a good or a bad thing. It is a given. It is like what makes us human, that we have an ego consciousness. You know, that is, it is if you like, it is being human in a, in a sense. So it's a really important, it really helped me anyway to learn that point. That uh, you just, uh, you know, that is what it means to be human. And in ego consciousness, in a way, you can, it can be, it's, it's, it's sort of like the root of our suffering and the means of our liberation in one. So, um, you know, but what, because uh, Buddhism says that, you know, here you are, ego consciousness, this is why you experience fear. So what, if you can do something which kind of like takes your attention outwards towards others, and, and kind of uh, that in itself will help uh, weaken your fear because fear is about, you know, losing your own ego consciousness. Yes. This little phrase, accomplish others good. When I was, I was just rolling this around in my mind and I was thinking it's funny because in a way you think, well, you know, lots of traditions and lots of, you know, you could find that phrase anywhere in a sense or something similar you know, doing good works, say, in the Christian tradition. But there's a, it's almost like there's a very kind of kind of subtler and subtler analysis in Buddhism. So it takes, uh, you know, already I'm talking about others just as us, that they're kind of like, uh, you know, we all think that we have a fixed identity and yet we don't. You know, it's not fit. That's what Buddhism says, you know. We're actually always in flux, always in process. We're always changing. So in, in the sense that uh, I, was, I was just reflecting on this, the text that some of you will know called the Diamond Sutra, it's a kind of extraordinary text because it's kind of nonsense in a way. It kind of makes sense, but it, it doesn't. It's another one of these mysteries. As, I was talking about mis, you know, having mysteries yesterday. But it says in there, you know, uh, 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 I can't quote it verbatim, but it... Oh, no, I haven't got the book, have I? It's, uh, but it says something like, you know, the, uh, what you do is you, you help others because there are no others. You know, that's what it says in a nutshell. You know, there are no others. In reality, there are no others because we're always changing. We just always fix and label, you know, things and people. But actually, we're always in flux. But also the other bit, accomplish others good. The good, there's even kind of an analysis of what it means to do good. You know, and uh, that actually you do need a bit of wisdom to really help people. And, uh, um, you know, it's worth just going, I'll just go through a few of those. I've got them written down on another bit of paper here. In fact, I can remember them. Um, the first one is helping people with material things, not to be ignored. You know, it's fantastic. Help people, give them money, give them things, nice things, presents, whatever it is. Give them shelter, give them food. I mean, let's not, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to offer in a, in a sense. But, you know, Buddhism says fantastic and there's a bit more that you can do as well. Time and energy. You know, often, especially, I think it's very important in the world today where it's the thing that we feel we lack. Giving your time and energy to people, you know, is so lovely when someone, you know, you think someone's got time for you and they just stop, listen to you, talk to you, whatever it is, you know, just take you in. Take you in as you like to be taken in. Uh, another one just sort of another layer, if you like, confidence. Very interesting. In fact, I hope you don't mind, but I just wanted to mention Padmadaka at this moment. <laughs> because I've lived and worked with him for so long. 
when I think of Padmadaka, there's something I like about being around him. And uh, it's partly to do with his confidence. When he said he was going to be here for the week, I was like, I just felt kind of, oh, great. There's sort of like a relief in me. And, uh, and it's, to do with, uh, it's to do with this. Well, it, but it's not a kind of bravado confidence. You know, like Padmadaka knows himself well, you know, he knows the things he wants to work on and so on. But it's like being able to hold all of that and hold a certain, just a certain kind of, being able to hold a kind of weight, if you like, uh, but, but quite lightly at the same time. He said to me once a few years ago, when we were living and working at Padmaloka, and he became the chairman at Padmaloka when he was very young. And, uh, you know, we used, to, we used to fight sometimes. I mean, I'm literally, you know, fisticuffs. But, you know, we used to sort of clash and so on. But he, sometimes he'd say to me, he, he said, well, look, you know, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, you know, so I'm probably condensing five years' worth of work into this sentence. But, you know, he'd say, look, I take your point, but um, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like being, being the chairman. I'm, I'm the chairman now, and I'm like, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take your point. There's a certain kind of invisible weight that you, you hold, really. It doesn't really, it's very, it's, very, it's very difficult to say exactly what it is, but there's something about the way that Padmodaka can do that that I really like, and I'm sure others you know as well would say the same thing. Uh, you know, there's something about being around someone who's confident, but not in this bravado way, just like who's... Uh, you know, just able to give a bit of presence that is incredibly satisfying. And, uh, you know, in uh, Buddhism, it's called a, grit, a gift. One of the greatest gifts that you can, you can give is to uh, give the gift of confidence to other people. Other people feel more confident around people who are confident. And then in Buddhism, of course, there's always another layer. There's another one after that, which is give people the means to transform themselves, the means to their own liberation. I feel like that's the highest gift of all. Of course, you know, Buddhism would say, give people the Dharma. It would say that, you know, <laughs> wouldn't it, in a way? But, uh, you know, give, give people the means for their own liberation, their own freedom, their own, you know, give people the ability to change themselves. So there's something about that, you know, there's something about that kind of classification that I really like. But I was, I've just been... You know, just in terms of an outer practice and this idea of accomplishing others' good, I think it's really worth a bit of reflection. You know, it's not an obvious thing when you think how to overcome fear. It's not, I mean, it's certainly, I don't think it's the first thing that would spring to my mind. It's something that I've definitely picked up from this particular kind of tradition, especially the, the later Buddhist, as it's called, Mahayana tradition, that it is the, uh, you know, it's the way to happiness, to contentment and to fearlessness is to... Uh, you know, do things that benefit other people. And when I was away, you know, these last um, couple of weeks when I've been um, on a solitary retreat, I was, I was, I was doing the metabhavna and I started to do it. And um, when I was bringing people to mind, I was thinking, uh, what can I actually do for this person? It, it was so exciting to do that, suddenly to think, what can I actually do? What can I literally can I do? You know, so not just imaginatively, although that was good fun as well, thinking of that. Um, in fact, I ended up I'd, with a kind of double practice for each person I thought of. I was like, are there some specific things I can do to help this person? You know, like when I get back or whenever I next see them or whatever it is, you know, some specific, even if it's like a little thing, you know, buy someone a present, a card or whatever. Are there some? Then I was thinking, what is there? Does that person have a dream or a vision that I know about? Or if they don't, can I ask them what it is? 
And how can I help them with that? So even if I can't do that one, you know, you might not literally be able to help someone realise their dream and their vision in a big way. But it was just fantastic thinking about it, you know, thinking about it. So I just had these people. I mean, it, you know, it's just like a whole load of people, really, whoever came to mind. And, and I was thinking, uh, yeah, what is, their, what is their vision of life? What is it? And how can I help them realise it? It was, it was a great... So anyway, I just want to suggest that if you want to play around, it's like an interesting way of playing around with the meta bhavna, if you like, the, you know, this meditation on loving kindness that I find terribly difficult to do as a standard meditation practice, um, uh, um, you know, in those stages that we do it. Uh, but there's something I really liked about this idea of, um, you know, what, can, what specific things can we do for people? You know, whether we like them or not, in a way. Of course, it's always easier to think of friends. But I was even thinking of people who I don't like. What can I do for them? <laughs> you know, sometimes I was thinking, mm, maybe I just, like, get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, leave them alone. Maybe that's, maybe that's something. Maybe that's a gift to them. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but... You know, it's good. It's good to you know. It's good to think of that in that sense as well. Not just to think of the sort of you know. Not just to think of your friends. To think of people that we're in conflict with. But anyway, but there is a serious point there. That, that you know, the tradition is is that thinking in this way. What can you do for others? Will help you overcome fear. And uh, you know, I, I feel there's some. I mean, I really feel. You know, it's a, as a specific teaching, it's one I've only come across recently. But when I look back, I mean, once I sort of overcome my kind of uh, the, the, the intensity of the anxiety, actually, I feel I've been trying to express my life like that. Not always very well, not always very successfully. But, you know, that has been something about with others, inspired by others who can do it really well. Uh, you know, there's something about giving the gift of uh, fearlessness and, uh, you know, uh, helping others. We hope you enjoyed today's Dharma Bite. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you. <laughs>